The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's good to see a lot of uh, old friends. I haven't been here on a Monday night for quite a while, so it's wonderful to see some of those familiar faces. Um, so what I thought I'd talk about today is uh, taking refuge. And um, in Theravada Buddhism, taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha is something that's done on retreats, um, in ceremonies, uh, at temples. Uh, but it can also be something that's done at a certain point in our practice uh, where we reorient our lives in a way that we focus uh, that our entire lives are oriented towards what's most important to us. And um, but I'm going to start talk. I'll talk about that, but starting somewhere else. <laughs> um, so first, I want to uh, tell you a little about my personal life. Um, I grew up in a, a home where um, my parents were World War II refugees, and um, and they were very disillusioned in the world and life and, and in God. And so they were uh, pretty much atheistic. And, uh, but not only atheistic, but we grew up, um, I grew up with uh, a very strong distrust of religion and um, of all religion. Sort of, I sort of uh, saw religion as being not the root of all evil, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, kind of helpful to support the evil in the world and, um, and a way to manipulate people. You know, when Marx said, um, talked about religion being the opiate of the masses, you know, I definitely resonated with that. Uh, so I was very leery about, you know, what religion did, was doing in this world. And, but at the same time, I had a very strong spiritual longing and um, when I was a teenager, um, I got involved with a, a Hindu-based yoga group uh, that taught us to meditate and do yoga. Uh, but they were very, it was kind of very open and, you know, as it was in the times, you know, of the, anybody could come and, you know, you donated a flower, you know, it was a very uh, loose-knit group. And uh, I was a teacher from India. And um, it was like a really nice home. Uh, I started changing my whole life. The way I lived, I did everything. I started wearing all white, you know, to signify purity. And um, eating a certain way. Um, uh, I stopped all distractions. I stopped reading books except the ones that they made me read in school, of course. And, uh, you know, no music, no, no distractions, just the spiritual life. And all my friends changed. And, and things, you know, and I went to India with a teacher. And, and it was all going well. And then uh, very gradually the teacher started coercing us to convert to his religion. And, um, and all of a sudden marrying people and saying, you marry this person, people who had never met before. <laughs> And, um, and just kind of started, you know, telling people what professions to, to go into. And so it was a series of, of things that happened over a, you know, gradual period of time. And, um, you know, I was fortunate that my very strong uh, distrust of religion um, was what allowed me to disengage from this group. I mean, it was a huge loss. 
Uh, it was my whole life was centered around it. Um, but uh, so I left the group very disillusioned, very angry. And, um, you know, it was about another more than a decade uh, before I sort of went back to um, meditation life. Um, so I first, um, um, so I was introduced to mindfulness meditation by Jack Cornfield. And Jack was, um, you know, a breath of fresh air. It was, um, you know, the practice w- was very uh, non-dogmatic. You, could, you didn't have to believe anything. You know, the whole practice uh, was, you know, try it out. See, see what happens. Um, the, one of my favorite uh, quotes from the suttas was from the Kalama Sutta. And um, to summarize it, um, is, you know, do not believe in anything simply because you've heard it. Um, don't believe in traditions simply because they've been around for many, many years, um, because it's spoken or rumored by many, uh, because uh, they're written in books, or because teachers um, or people of authority or elders believe it. But try it out, see for yourself if it rings true to you. And then if it rings true to you, act on it with diligence, with effort. And to me, that was like the heart of, of the practice. Um, so, um, you know, that particular perspective allowed me to get involved in this practice. And so I started going to retreats. And, and at some point, um, I, one of my teachers said that um, it was good to sit in a, in a sangha, in a group of people. And I found out about this group. And in 1994, um, you know, I joined the early IMC Sangha and started sitting with this group. And it was very nourishing to me. And it was a really wonderful place to uh, grow in the practice. Um, And every once in a while, um, Gil would invite a monastic, you know, and they'd come here in their robes and with uh, the, you know, thousands of years old tradition and a lot of religion, you know. And, you know, and we were never, you know, I never heard that we were supposed to believe anything, but it was, there's a dissonance to me between the monastics who not only brought this, the Buddhist religion as a religion with, uh, um, there was also the relationship to women in the countries that, you know, that they came from, you know, that their tradition came from. And um, it was very dissonant to me, you know, the, um, you know, the monks uh, have 217 rules, I think it's 217, you know, and here's this whole practice about freedom, and here they have this incredibly tight rituals, and, you know, and it was just like, I didn't know how to hold it, you know, on one hand, you know, try it out for yourself, and then here's this monk saying, here's all these rules, and, um, you know, and also, you know, women in Asia, um, in the Theravada tradition, uh, don't have the uh, rights of the men. I, it's very, um, you know, if you go on retreat in Asia, the, the male monks eat first, then the men lay people, then the women nuns, and then the women lay people. So, you know, coming out of the feminist movement, you know, that just didn't sit well with me. Um, so that, you know, there was a little, you know, a little bit of religion here that was, you know, showing its, uh, uh, its shadow side. 
And, um, but, you know, I met the monk, you know, and I sat with him and one of the abbots of the monastery. And in the connection with him, you know, he was just this very loving, compassionate, present um, teacher. And he taught me the Dharma. And I learned, despite of the fact that I just so disagreed with all this stuff. So it was a very interesting thing to hold. Um, you know, it disturbed me, pushed my buttons. <laughs> and uh, so it kind of sat around for, for quite a while. Uh, so continuing over the years, coming here, and, um, and Gil would periodically do um, a refuge class. I, how many of you here have taken Gil's refuge class? For some of you, he does like every few years. And, um, you know, and that seemed like to me, you know, re- taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha um, seemed a little bit religious. It had that kind of uh, tone to me. And, um, you know, the Buddha said when he was dying, you know, he said, uh, you know, there's a different ways of uh, translating this, but be lamps unto yourselves or be an island unto yourself. Be refuges unto yourselves. Take yourself no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look look not for refuge to anyone besides yourselves. And so, you know, I wondered how did that work with taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha? You know, so it was a little bit uncomfortable for me. So I was in a long retreat, and one of my teachers, who I really, really respected quite a bit, you know, gave this wonderful talk on taking refuge, and, uh, and I could not, it was the only Dharma talk at the retreat, this was like a very long retreat where they, they gave these beautiful talks every night, and I couldn't connect. You know, I couldn't find a way to, t- you know, that that actually gave me refuge. What does it mean to take refuge? You know, um, one of the things that happened to me on retreats, my early retreats, almost every single retreat, I would spend very significant periods of my retreats with images of uh, a lot of the horrors in the world just showing up in my mind. Um, you know, my parents had gone through some pretty horrendous life experience, and I'd grown up hearing about it. And so all those images would show up, and, you know, what kind of, how do you take refuge in the face of that? Where do you find refuge when the world can be so harsh and there can be so much suffering in the world? And, you know, how can I take these words to, to you know, how can they help? Um, you know, so I went to my teachers during the interviews, you know, because uh, this was like really, you know, very up in my mind. You know, I, I couldn't, you know, I'd meditate, but this would kept coming up. It just kept coming up. And, um, and I said, what does it mean to take refuge in the Dharma? And um, one of my teachers said, um, you know, they said the teachings, you know, and that kind of seemed kind of a little bit dry at the time. And uh, then another teacher said, uh, take refuge in nature, you know, and I go, nature? He said, yeah, you know, walk around outside. We were in a beautiful forest, you know, and he said, walk around outside and contemplate on what taking refuge in nature is. So, you know, I went for this really long hike and um, got bit by all these black flies, you know, <laughs> and had these huge welts. And... Um, 
you know, and I go, I don't think I'm taking refuge here. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I just kept thinking about what, what is the heart of the, Buddhist practice, of the Buddhist teachings. It's the Four Noble Truth and the Eightfold Path. You know, we hear all these other teachings and there's thousands of pages, but really the heart of it is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And I just spent actually several days for hours just hanging out with, you know, what did those mean? You know, could any of that really be a refuge to me? And... Um, and when finally, as I, as I sat with each one of the steps, you know, I realized that the one thing I could do in the face of tragedy, in the face of great suffering, is to show up for it, to be present for it. It was really the only thing I could do. And that I didn't have to turn away from it. Uh, that there's a choice in those moments of suffering where we can either rail against it which doesn't add anything good to the situation, or we can actually be there and witness it, um, meet it, and respond in whatever way we can without adding suffering to the situation. So if a situation is really, you know, is very, very difficult, say major illness, it's very, very painful, it doesn't add anything good to say, oh, it shouldn't be this way. Right? You know, it's really so. How do we meet that? When we meet that and we don't add anything else, that's where wisdom can arise. And that's where I found, you know, my first feeling of, ah, this is what refuge is. I can meet suffering just one moment at a time. One moment of suffering, one moment at a time. And, um, and so I started a practice that, that day of uh, every sitting, every time I meditate, uh, or most times, um, of, um, of starting my sittings with taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And, um, and I, you know, I don't see it as a religious thing. I see it as skillful means. It's really a very practical thing that the Buddha taught in the, in the uh, Four Noble Truths, in the Eightfold Path. So what I wanted to do is uh, just go over the uh, Eightfold Path and how, how I reflect on it each time that I sit. Um, so the, the Eightfold Path, um, well, let me start, the Four Noble Truths, you know, it are, it's the truth of suffering, that there is suffering in the world. And um, there's also joy in the world, but there is suffering. And uh, the second uh, noble truth is that the cause of suffering is craving, is wanting things to be different than they are, you know, really wanting them to be different. So if, if what's happening is something we don't like, you know, we're unhappy, we want it to go away. If it's something that we like, we want to grab onto it. So clinging is the cause of suffering. Now, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, if you break your leg, it's going to hurt. It doesn't matter whether you cling or not, there's still going to be pain. But we refer to the clinging, that's what we add on top of that. 
You know, we have to deal with our pain. There's no question about it. You know, if there's oppression in this world, oppression hurts. Our hearts hurt. Uh, but we don't add any more suffering to it. We don't, we don't spend our energy trying to resist what's already there. And um, the third noble truth is that um, suffering ends and we stop clinging. Not pain, but suffering. And, um, and the fourth noble truth is the path to ending suffering, the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path, you know, we, we talk about it just, you know, in order, you know, one, two, three, four. But it's really, a, uh, you know, it's really one thing that where each part of the path supports each other part of the path. And I'm going to talk about them in order, but when I work with them in my own mind, I don't do them in order. I do them in the way that I connect with them personally. Um, so the first part of the path is right view. And right view has two aspects. You know, the first aspect is just understanding that craving causes suffering, the Four Noble Truths. And the second aspect is understanding of karma, that everything we do, all our actions, whether they're verbal, whether they're actions of the body, or actions of the mind, they all have consequences. They all have an impact, and they condition us. The more we do anything, the easier it is to do it, right? The more you play, you know, if you're learning a song on the, on the piano, you know, if you hit a wrong note, it's like every time you hit the wrong note, it gets easier to hit the wrong note. Or if you hit the right notes, you get better and better and better. So whatever it is that we do with our minds, every, every thought actually conditions the next thought. A happy thought conditions um, a happy thought. Uh, a grumpy thought conditions you, you know, uh, you get a flat tire and you go, oh, that ruined my day, and that sure conditions what's going to happen the rest of the day. Um, so the right view is the, the filter through which we live our, our life. Um, the view that we have, you know, if we see our entire life through this concept of is there suffering um, and can I let go of suffering, you know, we live our lives very differently than if we live our lives trying to get something all the time. Um, so right view, very naturally, when we see that, uh, that all our actions and thoughts matter, naturally leads to the second part of the path, the second step, right intention, uh, which is, well, if everything matters, everything that's going on in here matters, then I want to be kind. You know, I want to be uh, compassionate. I don't want to cause harm in the world, either to myself or to anybody else. And I want to let go. You know, I want to be able to let go instead of cling. So those are the three right intentions. And so um, it's just what naturally follows when we really see our own suffering and we see our own clinging. And when we're connected with those three right intentions, you know, kindness, compassion, renunciation, then we naturally live lives based on that. Our actions are going to be, you know, kind actions. We're not going to steal. We're not going to um, kill. We're not going to um, abuse people. Um, we're not going to, um, you know, 
say cruel things to people. We're going to speak in, in ways that um, uh, create harmony in life. Um, so our intentions just naturally uh, go into the third, fourth, and fifth step of the path, which are our actions, or we call our ethics or virtue, which are right action, right speech, and right livelihood. Those are the things that we do in the world. Um, so the sixth step of the path is right effort. And what we mean by right effort is actually taking responsibility for the state of our mind. And it means that um, it's the effort to cultivate skillful mental habits and to let go of unskillful ones. That's what right effort is. It's, and, and you have to have enough wisdom from right view to know, well, what is skillful? What do we cultivate? So if we find ourselves, you know, we just got a flat tire and you go, oh, God, now I'm going to be late and everything, you know, my, my afternoon is ruined. And we, know, we wake up, we go, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, look at this state of mind. You know, I'm in this kind of dark state of mind. It's not an accident. It's a habit. States of mind like that are habits. We don't get what we want. We're like little kids. You know, now I'm unhappy, you know. And, and you know, we're not that different than, than four-year-olds in, in a lot of ways. And so taking responsibility, okay, so here it is, a state of mind. I'm kind of, you know, feeling bummed out, feeling sorry for myself. I don't have to keep supporting that. It doesn't mean that we, you know, become phony and we go, okay, now I'm going to be, you know, always happy and, you know, a little prima donna, you know. It just means that, okay, I have some mental habits going on right now that are unhelpful. They're, they, they're moving me towards suffering instead of moving me towards happiness. So I can start cultivating and saying, okay, I'm going to stop. I don't have to keep feeling sorry for myself. I can just, okay, just come back to the present and it's okay, I'm just standing here. Nothing terrible is happening. I just have to change a flat tire. Um, so that's wise effort, right effort. And the next step of the path, and again, this is you know, what we do in the cultivating of the mind in meditation um, and during the day, is right mindfulness. And mindfulness is being aware of what's going on in the present, just knowing what's happening. Um, without judging what's happening, without resisting what's happening, but just really seeing what's going on right now. Now, you know, one of the things, we keep using the word right, you know, right this, right that. And what we mean by that is that, for instance, um, you know, you could be very mindfully about to punch someone, <laughs> you know, and you could feel every muscle moving and really, really be present for it, you know. But that's, um, you know, that's the pe missing word there, right. <laughs> you know, so right or wise refers to that it's mindfulness in relation to right view. You know, it's, it's always in that reference point of, of our view of, you know, am I paying attention in a way that is skillful? Or am I just paying attention? Yeah, this, you know, I'm really, really bummed out. Yep, yep, I'm mindful, I'm really bummed out. You know, things are terrible. Yep, I'm very aware of it, you know. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, how are we mindful? We're mindful in the context of right view. None of these pieces of the path stand alone. 
And so in the way that mindfulness helps us see clearly, concentration gives us the power to, to really penetrate and see even better. It gives us the strength to stay mindful moment after moment after moment. We can all be mindful, right? I mean, just right now, you turn your attention, up. Oh, here I am, okay? So we can all do that. But concentration develops a steadiness of mind that allows the mind to stably keep looking, keep being here, steady, steady, steady. And so all of these steps work together and for for the purpose of what I like the way I like to think of it is for disentangling the heart from craving I like the word disentangling because that to me it feels like this this knotted thing just kind of releasing inside me you know whenever I have these moments of, of real freedom you know it's like to me it's that feeling of like a bunch of knots just going ah oh. You know, so uh, that's the imagery that, that I like to use. Um, so this is the practice that I do. And what I'd like you to do with me um, is I'll just take about a, a minute to do this. If you'd like to close your eyes, and I'll just um, you know, briefly use the words that I use. And see, as, as I say it, just for a moment, if you can connect with the meaning of, of these parts of the path. So go ahead and close your eyes. I take refuge in the still heart of the Buddha, in the stillness and peacefulness that's available to me, in the potential for awakening found and for awakening and compassion found in each one of us. I take refuge in the Dharma, in this path of purification, in training the mind in mindfulness, Connect with a moment of mindfulness. In concentration, keeping the mind steady. In the cultivation of wise effort. In living a life based on kindness, compassion. and renunciation in freeing the heart of entanglement. I take refuge in the Sangha, the community of beings with awakened hearts whose love and compassion support me. May I awaken for the benefit of all beings everywhere.
So if, if uh, you're inspired to work with the Eightfold Path on a daily basis, um, it's, I think it's a really helpful to write it out in your own words. You know, not memorize somebody else's words, but really look inside you what supports you, what words support your understanding of it. Um, and so I'd like to end with just uh, a couple of um, stanzas from the Dhammapada. People threatened by fear go to many refuges, to mountains, to forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. But when someone going to refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the Eightfold Path leading to the ending of suffering, then this is the secure refuge. This is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released from all suffering. So thank you. We have a few minutes if anybody has any comments or questions. Could you explain the word renunciation, what you mean by that? Um, Very briefly, renunciation is letting go of clinging. For instance, um, you know, you might want to, some people sometimes, um, you know, they want to give money away. You know, and they'll give money as, as um, uh, they'll make a donation, but they do it for, because they're, um, they're showing off, you know. Um, they want their name up in the lights, you know. <laughs> or they might do it uh, because uh, they feel guilty. Um, so, you know, they're clinging to these different aspects, you know. So from the outside, by giving money, looks like, oh, I'm renouncing some money. Uh, but it's really what's in the heart. So it's the quality of, you know, so maybe I give my best friend my favorite, um, you know, piece of jewelry, you know, and I feel a little bit of a loss, but so, so there's a little, this little feeling of, oh, you know, but my motivation is because I really want to see the joy in her, you know, so I practice renunciation, even though there might be a little bit of that clinging there, but it's done with that intention of letting go, not of, um, you know, it's not the outward letting go, it's the inner letting go. If anybody wants to uh, share any way that they use the Eightfold Path on a regular basis, I would love to hear that too. Um. Um, well, I use the Eightfold Path regularly, naming it. So when something comes up, it's an unhealthy mind state, I say, okay, I'm, I'm mindful of it. I have the... Um, you know, whatever the, the steps are that I'm using. And 
I will, uh, when I'm sitting alone, obviously not here, but when I'm sitting alone, I'll have to actually say it out loud. Hmm. And I find what that does is it helps to draw me out of being so stuck and caught. Great. Yeah, often by doing something different can get us out of a mind state. You know, sometimes, you, you know, people who are very angry, very upset, you know, they, they'll actually go for a walk. You know, just doing something different, it allows you to change what you're doing. So speaking out loud is a great way to do that. Thank you. So thank you all for being here and for sharing this evening with us and practicing together. And uh, have a good night. Thank you.